0: Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week we have a conversation with Ruth Wilson Gilmore about her new collection, Abolition Geography.
1: Yeah, and this collection is really great. It covers basically essays from over three decades of her thinking and writing about everything from abolition to the position of the scholar activist, our carceral system, racial capitalism, and many other topics that are fundamental to our contemporary moment and kind of its long historical production. Also, it's a particularly good time, I think, to talk to Ruth Wilson Gilmore, not least of which because things are, (laughs) this is not lost on you or me or any of our listeners, things don't feel great right now. And I'm not trying to say that they at some point did feel 100% great, but it definitely feels like we're taking a backward slide just in terms of increased incidence of violence in the nation and also the way in which each subsequent SCOTUS ruling from the past month felt like it was chipping away at rights that I had long understood to be fundamental and kind of guaranteed. So in talking to somebody like Dr. Ruth Wilson-Gilmore, you're reminded not only that, yes, things are bad, but that there is always the potential and possibility to make action, to, in her words, make place for liberation and good things in the present. And I think that's an important thing for us, especially on the progressive left, not to lose sight of in dark times like these.
0: Yeah, for sure. And also I think having someone who's who has such a long view and who's been following these issues so closely for so long. Yep. Also take some pressure off the present. And so, you know, like, yeah, they've always been problems, they've always needed attention. It's not just this moment, that the trajectory is, is so much longer. That too, for me at least gives me some sense of solace. Like, oh yeah, things were bad before, they're bad now. And perhaps, yes, the horizon is a future where they might be better. So it was amazing to speak with her and she's so generous and I felt like I was getting kind of like a tutorial
1: yes absolutely (laughs) especially I would direct listeners to the end of our conversation where she lays out some really concrete kind of steps that one can take in the present to kind of enact change and make change so yeah well let's just get to the interview then shall we sounds great We are honored to have Dr. Ruth Wilson Gilmore with us on the line today. Dr. Gilmore is a professor of Earth and Environmental Sciences and American Studies at the City University of New York, where she is also director of the Center for Place, Culture, and Politics. A committed and longstanding scholar activist, Dr. Gilmore is the co-founder of grassroots justice organizations, including the California Prison Moratorium Project, Critical Resistance, and the Central California Environmental Justice Network. She is also the author of the award-winning Golden Gulag, Prisons, Surplus, Crisis, and Opposition in Globalizing California, which explored the material, political, and economic roots of California's ballooning carceral system, a microcosm of a much larger problem in the United States and the world. Dr. Gilmore joins us today to talk about Abolition Geography, Essays Toward Liberation, a new collection of essays that covers three decades of her thinking about abolition, activism, scholarship, the carceral system, and the structure of the prison-industrial complex, the political economy of racism, and much, much more. For Gilmore and her scholarship, which I find particularly exciting, these are not siloed experiences or issues, nor are they ideas whose end-use value is only the forms of capital exchange that occur at scholarly conferences, in faculty meetings, or in the course of a tenure-review committee's work. Rather, they are the braided and concomitant effects of an unjust political, economic, and cultural order that must be dismantled in order for liberation to take place. And in order for liberation to take place, Dr. Gilmore helpfully reminds us again and again throughout her career and these essays that we must make place. And that means looking for connections beyond the academy where theory meets praxis and where the vulnerable are not an abstraction, but a concrete human reality. Dr. Gilmore's thought and work are a much needed shot in the arm for a political and intellectual American culture that has in the view of many, atrophied or been co-opted by the extractive loops of a world organized under late capitalism, the very extractive loops she has spent her career unveiling and making manifest for us. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gilmore. it is a pleasure to have you join us today.
2: Thank you very much. And thank you for that generous introduction.
0: Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for these pieces and for all your work over the years. I thought that maybe we could start by having you reflect on the present moment, just because so much of your work and in, in seeding this idea of abolition, I feel like is finally. In the last few years, beginning to take hold in some ways, you know, that it has been more in the conversation than ever before. And I haven't followed the expansions of prisons or the contraction of prisons, but it also seems that maybe perhaps fewer prisons are being built in the present moment. You can correct me if I'm wrong on that. But at the same time, there's already a pushback that the District Attorney of San Francisco, Chesa Boudin, who was coming from a more abolitionist platform, has just been recalled. The Supreme Court is seeming like actually that the kind of action that people could take to elect officials is being limited. So it's a moment where it's, to me, seems that some of all the work you've been doing is finally gaining traction, but already it's also seeming that perhaps There's been immediate pushback. And I just wonder, as someone who has such a long reflection on activism, who's been an activist and been engaging with these issues for so long, what you've been thinking about recently.
2: That is a perfectly fair question and also overwhelming, as you already (laughs) know. I mean, times feel very overwhelming. But I'll try to at least end what I'm going to say in this first part on a note of optimism. So it is true that there's been a huge shift most notably concretized with the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. And while for any number of people that might seem to be only a parallel issue related to the prison industrial complex, the point is all of these things are connected. And they are connected because the ways that people, like all of the people, affected by Roe v. Wade, or all of the people affected by the hardening of gerrymandering in the US, or all of the people affected by the overturning of things like really pretty mild gun control laws, means that they are in the path of coming to harm. And the only response to that harm is the expansion and consolidation of more policing and punishment. So whether we're looking at a state like Texas, that before the SCOTUS decision had offered, through its legislature, to anybody in Texas a bounty, if they could find and bring to court somebody who either sought an abortion or helped someone seek an abortion, gives us a little bit of a view into how widespread policing and punishment are as part of what holds the United States together. That is the world we live in. Or the fact that many people in many different places in the U.S. who try to organize themselves into unions run up against impediments that then threaten criminalization of union organizers criminalization is very wide. It's very deep. And many people are thinking and writing and organizing about it. I'm going to say one thing about George Floyd, and then I'm going to turn and get to the more optimistic view that I have, (laughs) though it might be difficult to imagine. As my colleague at CUNY pointed out in a short piece he published shortly after George Floyd's public murder, the chain of events that led to that confrontation in the street started out because a low-wage worker was required as a condition of his employment to be a cop and judge whether a piece of money that he received seemed genuine or not, and if not genuine, to call 911. He was required to do that because his employer as I understand it, an immigrant, I believe a Palestinian American, who has a small food shop called Cup Foods in that neighborhood, an underserved neighborhood when it comes to food, had made a commitment to hire young people from the neighborhood to work in his shop. But to get his license, he had to agree to be a cop and to hire people who would agree to be cops. This is long before any uniformed personnel arrived. So one thing after another, after another, and we know how that whole sordid and tragic and horrible tale ended. Well, if we look throughout the kinds of jobs that more and more modestly educated people in the United States in the prime of life have, we see that a lot of that work is in one way or another guard work. The way for that young person working behind the cash register, they were required to be a guard or a cop. So they're not private security or public police, but they're involved in essentially keeping people apart from the fruits of the labor of all of the people who make all of the goods and do all of the services that make a very small number of people. Very, very wealthy. So this is the world that we live in. Now, let me get optimistic here, at least mildly so. It is true that prisons expanded rapidly, and it seemed endlessly in the 80s and the 90s and early into this century. It is also true that in California, that expansion slowed, and it slowed because of people organizing from the ground up not just six abolitionists, but all different kinds of people who could see and act on what they saw in terms of the overlapping and interlocking vulnerabilities that they faced, whether their struggle was to be confident that public sector unionism would bring them good pay and benefits, or to be confident that as workers in agriculture that they would not be exposed to pesticides and other toxins that would kill them, or that people living in urban or rural areas could count on air quality districts and water management districts to keep their water clean and safe. Those are some examples of the kinds of people we organized with to build in California what I came to call an abolition geography that more than all of the headlines, I think, helped to slow, if not to absolutely stop, the relentless juggernaut of prison building after prison building after prison building. And there are far fewer people locked up in California today than even were 10 years ago. And 20 years ago, the state had projected that by now there would be a quarter of a million, which is to say almost twice the number as they're locked up. All right, all of that is true. And yet, because the precariousness of so much life, whether it's life of households with one or two incomes or households with only part time income, households without income, difficulty of getting health care, difficulty of having adequate education, and so forth, has risen, we are seeing a new round of the putting into operation the forces of organized violence and their unbadged representatives in policing and prison to control and contain certain kinds of efforts to use the state and to demand from capital what people need to flourish in their lives. And yet, the same day the Chesa Boudin was recalled in the city and county of San Francisco, in an amazingly low turnout, which still puzzles me, tiny turnout for San Francisco's last 10 years, 15 years historically. Down in Los Angeles, an abolitionist was elected to the city council. Eunice Hernandez is an abolitionist, and she's not the only one. But her election was a hard fought struggle going door to door in her district. There was nothing automatic about her being elected against a three-term incumbent who had the party power behind him. And we see examples, however small, but very clear examples of people pulling themselves together, looking at where protections from calamity and opportunities for advancement can come from, like from the city government, and then demanding demanding that they get what they need, or people organizing against Amazon to demand what they need. I want to
1: turn to keep following the thread of this conversation, because I think it is vital to the question that you address in your work and many other abolitionists also address in their work, which is the question of making place. So Mm -hmm. fundamental here is the idea that liberation is not from a making place view and elsewhere. It's not always a future tense. It's not a place where we will arrive. It is a place that is always in kind of more of like a Marcusean way, like imminent, right? It's like, it's almost there. It's rippling in the present. I think that that idea that there is a better world, that is, you've used the term, for example, the position of, it might be just beneath you. It might be right where you are. It just hasn't been revealed yet, to be incredibly powerful at a moment when you, you know, you guys were talking about the SCOTUS rulings are taking away abortion rights, not making adequate change to gun laws And the same. July 4th was just yesterday and we had a mass shooting where there were, by the way, many good guys with guns. So clearly we know that is not the solution. And then adding insult to injury, the kind of on the national stage, the Democratic Party's completely ineffectual responses, from my view. this crisis, effectively empty words and furious calls for fundraising donations have left so many of us feeling frustrated and powerless. So how can we break ourselves out of, you are a person who faces the bleakness every day and yet still finds a way to move on, as do others that are your colleagues in that kind of fight like Mike Davis and Angela Davis. So how do we break out of that bleakness to build a better future? And what does making place look
2: like? Okay, what does Making Place look like? It looks like so many different things. Let me give some very concrete examples of that. I mentioned Eunice Hernandez's successful run for city council in Los Angeles. And anybody who watched Eunice's advertising, you could probably still find it in social media, you see that she was walking around her neighborhood and looking at the kinds of abandonment of her neighborhood that clearly were very straightforward things to be remedied. If people could bring together the political will and get their hands on the money and other resources to do it, whether it turns into a jobs program, affordable housing, all of the things she called for. All of the things that she called for are all minimum necessities for abolition of the prison industrial complex to happen. People must have shelter. They must have food that's decently priced. They must be able to get to and from work if they work or to and from school. They must, as my friend Gargi Padacharias put it so elegantly the other day, they must be able to expect learning early in life, and rest late in life. These are all things that people should be able to expect. In the case of Los Angeles Council District 1, what I imagine that Eunices and her comrades in the struggle are doing, are figuring out the ways to bring those demands to the city council, but also to continue building power Beyond Council One, in order for people to congeal their capacity to make demands and get results. Now, this might sound to some people listening in that it's all a matter of just rhetoric and slogans, and some slogans will last and some slogans will not. But here's the thing Unisys was probably in elementary school when a large number of people started a fight against the murderous conditions in the Los Angeles County Jails. Huge fight led by ACLU, Southern California, eventually resulted in a consent decree that demanded that Los Angeles County fix its jails. And the way that most already existing carceral agencies understand fix is build a new one. That fix is never like take it down, use the material for something else. It's build a new one. But of course, the wheels of change turn very slowly. And in the time between the consent decree for LA County and LA County breaking ground on a new multi-billion dollar jail complex, one label for men and one label for women, many people became involved in the struggle and spent a good deal of time, I was one and not the only one, with people at the ACLU and others talking about how there could never be a good jail. It doesn't exist. That putting people in cages is, by definition, a bad and harmful thing to do. And we worked and we worked and we worked. As I said, this struggle started I believe when UNICEF was quite young. She eventually became a leader in that struggle. She was one of the key people who saw that struggle to fruition and finally achieved, along with many, many comrades throughout, you know, in the building trades and so many different areas, an agreement not only to get this county board of supervisors to cancel the jails but also to set aside a significant chunk of county revenue to go into social welfare programs to make life better for everybody. So that's the context in which she is now or will soon be an elected member of the Los Angeles City Council. It's a different jurisdiction, but it's within L.A. County. That's what I mean by making place. We can see examples of this in different parts of the world. One of my favorite examples that I often point to these days is the MST, which is the Landless Workers Movement in Brazil. The Landless Workers Movement in Brazil has celebrated its, I think, 38th anniversary. And this is a movement of mostly rural people mostly people who, when working, are working in something related to agriculture, who, because they are landless, have not been able to produce for themselves, much less for a market. So the MST has, over time, pulled together its now millions of members to engage in land occupations for unused land that are owned by you know, capitalist growers to make fields fertile, to build communities, to build towns, build schools. There's an entire education program. And one of the many things the MST does is it shares its learning. So the kinds of things that they have learned to do in the context of Brazil, which, as you know, is a very big country square miles and a big country in terms of population, they will take anywhere they're asked to go. So they go to Indonesia and talk with people in various parts of Indonesia that are trying to transform land use from palm oil production to food production where they go to South Africa and work with people in self-built communities, so-called quote-unquote shack dwellers who are trying to make their lands fertile anywhere. They will go and they have an entire urban agenda that's been growing because there are so many, especially long distance migrants who, wherever they are traveling from, are generally heading to a place where there is more money, not less. So that would be North America, particularly the U.S. and Canada, who are interfered with at the behest of the United States or Canada or whomever who then wind up in detention. And so the MST, in conjunction with many urban areas, groupings in urban areas of Brazil, have been figuring out how to produce the possibility for shelter through, say, squatting in unused buildings for long-distance migrants so they are out of the crosshairs of the police, of migration officials, and so forth, so that they can sort of catch their breath and then decide if they want to stay put, keep moving.
0: That's a really interesting example. And it kind of leads me to ask you a little bit about your background and why geography was the discipline that you chose. I know that you studied drama at Yale and that you, your activism started before you became a geographer. Why is that to you the discipline that kind of focuses your interests or, you know, your activism? I'm curious.
2: I stumbled into geography, actually. I had, as you just mentioned, I'd studied drama. I have two degrees in drama. And through the kind of thinking and sensibility that I developed as a Brechtian in the late 60s and into the mid-70s, I had a lot of, as it were, sensitivity to how... Everything in a drama is made, and as Brecht puts it, the stage tells a story too. That it's not just the container for the story, but it in itself is a story. And that certainly was true in the you know agitprop we did on street corners against war, against criminalization, for whatever. Fast forward through the next fifteen years or so of my life after I left drama school. I was involved in political work constantly, as I had been before that, doing all different kinds of things. And in that context, so really focusing now on the long 1980s, there were so many enormous changes in the world. So the long period of colonial liberation movement was kind of coming to an end. Not that all colonized people had been liberated, but that long period that seemed like it wouldn't end because so many colonized peoples were successfully throwing off the yoke of colonial and imperial domination. So that was happening. It was coming to an end in part because the Soviet Union was disintegrating. In the context of the 1980s, structural adjustment, was interrupting the possibility for newly independent or, in some cases, long-time independent but newly industrializing countries to make their own way in the world because international financial institutions were making demands about wages and prices and so forth that followed pretty directly on the interrupted radical agendas that we saw in the 70s, whether it was the overthrow of Allende or other movements of that kind. So all of these things were happening in the 80s. And I, like many people, had spent a fair amount of time in and about revolutionary parties. For me, I had only lived in the United States. And it seemed as though the... Forces of counter-revolution and the difficulties that people were having in understanding and being able to explain and act on our explanations of how the world was changing were inadequate to conditions. So I set out, like so many people in the 80s, to learn as much as I could so that I could understand the world better. And in the context of this study group work and reading on my own and talking with people and going to meetings and meeting people who were involved in unfinished revolutions, for example, people from South Africa and the frontline states and so forth, comrades from Palestine, I thought, I am just not able to think through the things I think I ought to understand to be able to see useful patterns of organizing and activism. So I thought, all right, I'll go to school and like regularize my knowledge, see if I can organize it into a shape and decided to study political economy. In the United States, One does not just show up at school and say, teach me political economy. You got to like figure out through some discipline how to do it. And for about five minutes, I thought I would go to an economics department. You know, I'm diligent and I'm tough. And I realized that was not going to be where I would learn what I wanted to learn. Then I looked at planning schools. And actually, there's a lot of possibility in planning schools. So I thought very seriously for a long time about becoming a planner, because it was like one of the last refuges of Marxist economics in the United States. And at the time, Mike Davis was teaching as an adjunct at UCLA in the Graduate School of Architecture and Urban Planning. And he was my friend. And I thought, oh, I can do this. Idea, idea, idea. And then I kind of stumbled into geography. And when I saw what a rich field of study it could be, like nothing was out of bounds, as it were, for thinking geography, thinking culture, economics, politics, environment, earth, air, fire, water, everything was admissible to that field of study. And I could study political economy in a really rigorous manner. I thought I will do that. So I went to geography school.
0: You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Ruth Wilson Gilmore, author of Abolition Geography. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. I have Natalia Molina back on the line. Her latest book is A Place at the Nayarit, How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community. And she has a book recommendation for us. Natalia.
3: One of the things I love about Los Angeles is the ways in which Latinx means something different, even in one place, one city. Latinx identity can vary by zip code. So I am also reading and recommending George Sanchez's new book, On Boyle Heights, and Pierrette Hongdu-Sotelo and Manuel Pastor's book, South Central Dreams. Tell me about those two books. So George Sanchez's book on Boyle Heights is a way of looking at the ways that Boyle Heights shows how people's connection to community and neighbors can transcend time and historical change, sometimes fragmented and yet deeply interconnected city. And if anybody knows George's first book, uh, Becoming Mexican-American, they know what a powerful storyteller he is. For me, what Vin Scully did for baseball and Jonathan Gold did for food, George Sanchez does for the history of L.A. South Central Dreams, Finding Home and Building Community in South L.A. is this incredibly researched book by two of our leading sociologists, And so what they do is they go out with their team out into South L.A. They do something like 197 interviews to really give us a new paradigm for thinking about race, place and identity. And so it not only looks at Latinx, for example, um, in the first generation immigrants, but then the second generation and how their identity shifts when they're raised alongside their black neighbors in South L.A., And so rather than telling this narrative of like immigrant assimilation or like that there's just tension and negotiation between Latinx and Black, they're really showing how these communities have a shared struggle that they recognize and form community in South L.A. Interesting.
0: And what do you see as you're saying there are different forms of being Latinx, even within the same city? How are those books maybe giving different versions of that.
3: Sure. So the South LA one is, I think one of stands out in terms of, I'm going to understand my Latinx identity and how it's shaped by anti-racism towards Blacks. And so it's really kind of a wider understanding of race. The Boyle Heights book is also looking at that immigrant population, how it's changed from being, or that space from being a very much more diverse including Jewish neighborhood, to increasingly Latino, to a high undocumented population. So what does it mean to be a democracy and to ask for rights when you aren't even a citizen?
0: Interesting. And does it make you think at all about the neighborhood that you grew up in, which is Echo Park?
3: It's, again, the ways in which now being in an area that is more progressive, multiracial also shapes people's opportunity. But also that space of that geographic crossroads where people can both come into the neighborhood and then people can also leave the neighborhood more easily through those connections that they make while at places like an urban anchor, like the Nayarit. Um, what I call place taking. So not living these kind of confined, segregated lives, but really Enjoying the vibrancy of Los Angeles.
0: That's nice. What are the books again and who are the authors?
3: So, the first book that I have for you is George Sanchez, Boyle Heights How a Los Angeles Neighborhood Became the Future of American Democracy. The second book is South Central Dreams Finding Home and Building Community in South LA. And as a bonus, There will actually be an excerpt of a conversation that I had with the authors on the Larb website (laughs) later on this month. It's extracted or condensed discussion from our panel that we had at the L.A. Times Book Festival in April. Nice. And did you tell me who those authors were? Our panel from the L.A. Times Book Festival was a conversation between George Sanchez, Pierrette Hongdu-Sotelo, and myself.
0: Thank you so
3: much, Natalia. Those books both sound
0: great. That was Natalia Molina. Her most recent book is A Place at the Niari: How a Mexican Restaurant Nourished a Community. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Ruth Wilson Gilmore, author of Abolition Geography. Really interesting. Let me just ask a quick follow up on that because um, I'm curious. So from there, like from geography, you, you kind of directed towards prisons, but the you point out in the book that the economic relationship, you know, to security is really central. That the biggest employer in the world is a security company, and that inequality is directly related uh, to security expansion. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just a direct connection I've never made for myself. I just wondered if you could explain that connection just a little bit.
2: Well, that's a good question. And it's, it's, you, you put in your question another way for me to say something that I said a while ago about the fact that all different kinds of people in all different kinds of struggles to make their lives flourish keep running into this problem of organized violence as the impediment, even though they don't expect it. They think, we want to have clean air. Why are these cops here? We want this. Why are these security guards here? We need this other thing. How come we're not even eligible to make the petition because of our lack of documentation status and so forth? So security has become you know, this huge um, global enterprise with very deep roots in the United States because, well, imagine, if you will, dear listener, any chart or table that shows the shift over time in, let us say, worker productivity as against the share of value that workers are paid as wages. There's this huge and widening gap. Or over time, the um, upward rush of income and wealth to the highest strata of um, owners and—I'll say earners, but I'll say it in an advised way—compared to everybody else. Or if we look at the um, the uh, prevalence of high rates of particulate matter in the air where people live in urban and rural area, high rates of childhood asthma and what that has to do with child futures. Whatever we look at and whatever problem we see, we have to understand that one of the key things that keeps people from being able to organize to demand more is that demanding more has been effectively, if not in code and legislation, criminalized. It's very hard to do. It's really, really hard to do. So security firms uh, form the thick line of whatever color their uniforms are between workers and resources. Um, Security lines are constantly uh uh, patrolling borders and interfaces between where people are and where they need to go the security if you if you read the websites as i did last week for the um uh for the really huge security firms it's really astonishing to see how many aspects of everyday life they are involved in so They do border security. They do um, prisons and jails, although most are public. Um, They do, um, you know, they move cash back and forth from from shops to banks, uh, like Brinks. They count cash. They distribute cash to small retailers and kind of evaluate how much cash they'll need. I mean, it's really astonishing to see how security is involved in all these different aspects of life. Or let's go somewhere um, in our imagination where I've never been in, in real life to um, Iraq. And we can go to the eastern city of Basra, which is a port, which has been going through an enormous um, uh, period of rebuilding very, you know, shiny skyscrapers and, and, and the kind of, Uh, gentrified uh, sales pitches that you imagine are typical for, well, they are typical for somewhere like San Francisco or Manhattan, right? Come to this shiny place and live in an apartment with clubs and concierges and all of that. That is a place as well where Eric Prince's company has this huge presence as a security firm. So, you know, just making um, uh, explicit, what I've been trying to describe in more general terms, and that is for this wealthy thing to rise up, there has to be and there will be um, uh, extremely harsh security um, uh, limits that will, for example, allow service workers to come and go but not stay, Um, will secure the ports, will, in in other ways, maintain and enhance the sort of social hierarchy that the developers of Basra hope to um, plop down in that newly rebuilt place.
1: Everything that you described, right, that's resource capture. That's how it works. And it works like hand in glove with the securitized forces of the state, and mostly of the kind of corporations that, that also control or and or are, are the state themselves. To shift terrain just slightly, there's a short anecdote, actually, in one of the early essays in this collection uh, that recounts your research visit to several California state prisons. So this was much earlier in your career with a group of scholars that included Angela Davis. So your group is mobbed first by Black female prison guards thanking Dr. Davis for, quote unquote, what you did to open up opportunities for them, right? So, And the irony, of course, never lost on you or on (laughs) Angela Davis. Mm -hmm. Um, And then a group of young female prisoners, one of which who describes having played Angela Davis in a Black History Month play, complete with what she describes as, I had the, quote unquote, the Afro wig and the miniskirt. I mean, there's so many layers to this particular image and anecdote, but one of the things that you kind of reflect on is that, quote, the person and the politics, end quote, of Angela Davis had, quote, become the character in this outfit. And so even though this example, this anecdote happens years ago, it recalls for me something that increasingly troubles me in the present, which is what I'd call, for lack of a better term, the complete aestheticization of politics. And that feels like really contemporary, you know, central to our contemporary moment. And that's not least of which in the kind of hypermediated social media culture of today. So I'm wondering if we are at a moment when the aesthetics or the affect of politics nullifies or distorts a kind of concrete movement or its possibility, or whether in your experience, that has always been a challenge and how you think we might address it.
2: That's a great question. Remember, Benjamin talked about the aestheticization of politics. He said "And the, the, the ultimate expression of that aesthetic um, thrill was war. I just want to put yeah. that out into the airways. There, there is a kind of nullification that, that happens over and over again when um, uh, certain um, symbols, as it were, of uh, political work, of political and cultural struggle become abstracted and then circulate. Whether it is, as, as I told in in that, in that piece, uh, uh, the, the view of Angela Davis as these items or as she put it one time quite angrily, you know, making her an icon. Uh, rather than an actual living uh, person whose who's, uh, thinking and work has had enormous effects throughout the world, enormous good effects. That That is one entire problem. Um, related to that problem is uh, something that uh, a fantastic writer whose work you might know, Edouard Louis, he's a French uh, writer, novelist, sociologist. Yes, the author
1: of The End of Eddie, um, End and of most Eddie. recently, A Woman's Struggles and Transformations. Exactly,
2: yeah. exactly. And he he wrote a book, which, full disclosure, he cites me on the first page, much to my surprise, uh, called Who Killed My Father. And in Who Killed My Father, he talks about how for any number of the people who he got to know when he finally ran away from his little post-industrial town in northern France and made his way to Paris and was finally where he thought he would be free and fully himself, he realized how, for so many people he encountered, politics was a matter of style, right? It was style, not life and death. Uh, and, I, I, and I really appreciate Edouard Louis' um, distinction between life and death and style. And, um, of course, we can see that one can um, recite all kinds of connections about um, vulnerabilities in the world and what ought to happen to remedy them. Everybody is able to recite that stuff. But the question for me is, how does having, you know, kind of those lines, that analytical, facility, shape everything one does with one's person, as one's person. So this is, I'm kind of leaning towards C.L.R. James here, who taught us all these decades ago, you can't profess Marxism unless you live it. And if you can't live it, if you're not living it in all aspects of your life. Now, there's no doubt that I fail. So I'm not saying I'm so pure and this person you were talking about is not. I fail probably every single day. But but, man, though it, everyone does. Right? Everyone that's, does. That's part
1: of it. We're not, exactly. We can never have a position outside of the system that we want to correct. We're inside of it always already.
2: Exactly. But that doesn't mean that, the, that our horizon shouldn't always be undoing the system and making determinations about what to do and not do that produce that undoing. Um, so, you know, I was just talking about the MST a little while ago. I'll give you another example, one you perhaps have heard me talk about in the past, and that is um, the National Nurses United. So here we're talking about a relatively well-paid, um, relatively secure, working-class job with a bit of prestige, because it's in the medical profession, nurses. National Nurses United is one of the biggest unions in the United States. It's really very remarkable. It tends to be women-led. Of course, there are many people who are nurses who do not self-identify as women. And they have um, been building a global network of solidarity uh, called Global Nurses United as well. And one of their most powerful um, U.S.-based uh, unions is California Nurses Association cNA CNA 20 years ago was a union that we didn't have to talk to more than five minutes to get them to understand abolition now it is also true that for many households uh, you know middle income households with working class jobs that we will find a nurse and a police officer being two of the responsible, wage earners. Right? So this is not unusual. I could tell you practically relatives who, who have that combination in their household. So there was no ne- necessary um, embrace on the part of the nurses of our position, our dream of the future, if you will. But the nurses got it. And over time, I have found that in working with the political education program of NNU, as I've done now for since the pandemic started, so I'm in my third year. It's really great to see how um, I am learning from what they are learning about where abolition actually is at in a number of um, interrelated arenas, and I'm going to talk about this for a second. One, nurses. Uh, generally work for large firms that tend, like Hospital Corporation of America, to be global behemoths. So they're working for big firms that aren't as big as Amazon, but they're big. And yet nurses, like the Amazon workers and everybody else who organizes unions in the states, has got to organize workplace by workplace, what we call the establishment. So nurses already see in the structure of their everyday political lives, the relationship between globalization and the devolution of power to the most local level where it cannot necessarily realize the kinds of goals that people whose work is to uh, reassure the suffering and comfort them and, and to the extent possible heal them can get what they need. So the nurses fight on the local level. They work for a global firm. And they are agitating on the US-wide level for Medicare for All, which, as you know, will be resolved state by state because devolution kills all of us, generally. It is also true that um, many, many nurses in the United States, over the last 100 years, have been themselves long-distance migrants. So there's a great book by a writer called Kathy Suniza Choi, who teaches at Berkeley, uh, called Empire of Care, about Filipina nurses in the United States. That book is like 20 years old. But there are many, many nurses who themselves are long-distance migrants from the Philippines, from the Caribbean, from West Africa, particularly Sierra Leone and Liberia, many places in the world who are sending remittances to their homelands while also the US is home as well so they're living these non contiguous or geometrically discontinuous lives and making a place out of this archipelago of experience and struggle this is part of making place as well so the the nurses for me are like a Excellent example of thinking how we can understand internationalism from below in these real and visceral terms um in such a way that we don't you know get all either misty eyed about it or think that internationalism from below is merely a matter of localism reproduced across the surface of the planet you
0: know. As someone who comes from a family of activists, you know, because I know your grandfather and your father were both organizers. Um, your cousin was, uh, you know, who was tragically murdered, was uh, the leader of the L.A. Black Panther chapter. So you, it seems that it's, you, you grew up with organizing and activism. And also you had this, you know, huge, you've devoted your life to being an activist. I think for a lot of people, it seems like where do you start? How do you do it well? what's what are some ways to do it effectively? Um, clearly, you've had a lot of experience. I thought maybe just to to end, we could we could talk about just a few tenants for you know effective organizing. What does that look like?
2: Great question. The first uh, advice I have to anybody who's wondering what to do is join something. Like, and if you're part of something, then bring to some group that you're a part of um, your concerns and commitments. And you will find, as everybody does, there's always at least one other person. There's always at least one other person who is interested in what you're interested in. So you don't necessarily have to invent a wheel, but people who are members of faith communities have regularly um, consolidated their energy and enthusiasm to um, uh, people the front lines of all kinds of things, whether it's sanctuary churches or you know marching in civil rights struggle or protecting people seeking uh, reproductive health care or um, making it possible for people who have been incarcerated to come out and get a footing you know back in the free world. I mean all of these things happen. They happen all the time. Again, people don't have to in, uh, invent, They might find there are people at their faith community already doing this work. You could do this work as well. Unions, join a union. If you're not in a union, figure out, and you have a job, figure out who else who does the work that you do might be interested in, in exploring the possibility of becoming a union because doing things together is how we make change. There are all kinds of mutual aid uh, organizations that are possible. There are now in the United States, for the first time in my conscious lifetime, there are anarchists who are running for elected office. After having you know, said, no, no, you know, no gods, no states, they said, oh, but if we get um, into a situation where we are actually able to make decisions about resource allocation, that can be good. And the resource can be something like the public library. It, it, I mean, it might be resource like paving the street or cleaning up the water, but it could be something as basic as defending the public library and keeping it open. Because the library is not only a place where people can go to learn things and have books and have a, like a life of, of delight, as I did as a child at my local public library, but it's also one of the few places where houseless people and people who are um, uh, in precarious situations can go for like really basic things, whether it's the internet or use the bathroom. And the current president or the president-elect of the American Library Association is this amazing person called Emily Drabinsky, who is fantastic and who ran for that job in order to remind people that the library is this great public resource that we must defend. And I can also brag, she's my colleague. She is a librarian at my school as well.
1: I think that is a great place for us to end. You know, again, I I so appreciate, this sounds odd, especially when we when we've been talking about very weighty topics that take, you know, careers, generations to unpack, understand, and 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 organize. Um, I so appreciate your attention to the concrete reality and the way in which you never allow, you know, as somebody specifically who's been working within academia for much of your life, that you are also doing as much, if not more work outside of academia. Um, so I very much appreciate, I guess there's a, a word that gets thrown around a lot, which is the public humanities. And I always think of someone like yourself, Dr. Gilmore, as someone who really lives up to what the potential of that term is, which is doing the work for the public. And it has been a pleasure speaking with you. And we have just really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you again for having me on. We've been speaking
0: with Ruth Wilson Gilmore, author of Abolition Geography. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene teasley Blood.